Praise forever to the King of Kings. This morning as we continue our series in the Gospel of John, our title is Confronted by the Resurrection Part 3 as we look at John chapter 20 verses 19 to 31. Maybe the title for these uh, last sermons in the Gospel of John has got you a little perplexed. What can possibly be confrontational about the resurrection? Well, let me explain. Here we have ordinary people with ordinary lives and an ordinary faith, as we saw, having to come to terms with the reality that their friend and teacher, once beaten to death, crucified, is now alive. And even though there were people who believed in God, they weren't atheists, they weren't unbelievers, they believed in God, but but there is an expected way that life is supposed to be carried through. You're born, you live, you die. And then comes the afterlife. And in the Old Testament there is a a very fuzzy view of what that afterlife uh, would look like. But with the resurrection of Jesus... Eternity has now dramatically impacted the present life. In many ways, their lives would have been easier, more predictable, if Jesus' body had in fact remained in the tomb. But no, suddenly their priorities, their lives are all turned upside down and redirected. Redirected towards the kingdom of heaven and its rightful king that we just sung about, their friend Jesus. Their lives now belong to him because they have been bought at a price. However, if you're an unbeliever, you must probably say, this is all there is. No one owns me. I own me. There is no more. In the words of Bon Jovi, it's my life, it's now or never, I ain't going to live forever, I just want to live while I'm alive, it's my life. Well, that could be an anthem for, I think, many people, maybe even the majority of people. But the Bible says otherwise. You are going to live forever, in heaven or in hell. And it is because of the eternal consequence of this that so much is at stake. So much so that Jesus died on the cross for your sins to bring you to God. Now what difference does it make to us who live 2,000 years later after those events described for us in the Gospels? What difference does it make to us today that Jesus was raised from the dead? So let let us follow some of the implications from then and apply it to us today. The first um, first breakdown this morning comes in verses 19 to 20. Peace needed. Peace needed in verse 19 and 20. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. 
The events described by John take place only 12 hours, approximately 12 hours after Jesus emerged from the tomb. It is Sunday evening, the first day of the week, and the disciples are together in a room practicing social isolation. They have locked themselves in this room in Jerusalem, asking themselves, are we next? Well, after all, Jesus did say to them, what's going to happen to me? First they'll come after me and then they'll come after you. Persecution is, will come. All except Thomas and, and Judas, obviously, were there. The rest are still trying to make sense, processing the events of earlier in the day. But they can't isolate themselves from Jesus, who miraculously enters the room and three times says to them, peace be with you. He repeats this in verse 20, verse 21, and in verse 26. And, and this is much more than just a regular, uh, g'day guys, how's it going? But they needed to, to hear peace because they were paralysed by fear of the Jews. Suddenly, the very Jesus that they had abandoned on the cross, on his hour of need, appears in the middle of the room with the doors locked and doesn't say, surprise, but rather the Prince of Peace proclaims to them peace. Now what is this peace? Jesus is not referring to, to their peace with God. Their sins have been forgiven by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and they have been accepted by their Heavenly Father. And by showing them his hands and his side, he was not only showing them his unmistakable ID, but also displaying to them the cost, reminding them of the cost to redeem them, to save them. It is his blood that has purchased this peace for them and for us. And once they understood all that, what they needed to experience and to take hold of, to understand, was not peace with God, but the peace of God, to make it real, to apply it to their daily walk with God. And this is what the Apostle Paul said on the matter in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. He said, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is a quote I, uh, I saw on, on Facebook the other day. Fear does not stop death, it stops life. And worrying doesn't take away tomorrow's trouble, it takes away today's peace. And as you read the scriptures from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, there's, there are obviously so many lessons but from cover to cover, you would find this principle that is applied, is that being safe does not consist in the absence of danger, but in the presence of God, in the presence of God, and that makes all the difference. The second, the second part of the message comes from verses 21 to 23. Peace 
offered. Peace offered. In verse 21, Jesus uh, said, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, reading the last two chapters in John, we notice that every time that Jesus appears to his disciples, he gives them something to do. It's the old, come see, go tell. Come see, go tell. And once again, he proclaims peace to them, but not the type of peace that leaves them locked up in their isolation and fear. He tells them, I want you to go and declare my peace in my name. If you're trusting in Jesus, God has put us to work. Martin Luther said, faith is a busy little thing. The church cannot isolate or or hibernate in some bunker or some cave. We are actually more like like bees. We are a beehive of activity. We cannot lose the plot. Doesn't matter the circumstances. Doesn't matter the self-preservation that uh, seems to be first and foremost in the mindset of many. We are actually sent to proclaim the peace of Jesus Christ to a world that is lost, but worse than that, to a world that is at war with God. We are sent to proclaim, to offer God's peace. Now Jesus breathing his Holy Spirit on his disciple is is, is similar language to Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 where the Lord breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, this is into Adam, and man became a living being. This time Jesus breathed the breath of the spirit of eternal life into his disciples. The, the, the imagery is also similar to Ezekiel 37 where he is told to, to prophesy and to and breathe life on the bones so that they will live again. That, that imagery of, of post-war desolation where it just dried bones everywhere. Ezekiel is told, go and preach, go and tell them and life will come. And that's what happened. And this is what the Lord promises in, in verse 14 in Ezekiel 37. I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life. Now through the Holy Spirit, it's not just about giving life, but it's also empowering. Empowering so that when we are sent, we have God's power to fulfill his commission. And these disciples, they're all transformed from quivering cowards into a group of bold men who in God's power will turn the world upside down. Now Jesus' forgive, uh, words about forgiveness of, of sins in verse 23 has been a topic of discussion and, and controversy uh, for many years. And the Catholic Church has taken these words to mean that the apostles and the priests that follow are given power to forgive sins. But as evangelicals, we disagree. Only God can forgive sins. 
But here is, is, is a wonderful promise to anyone who puts their trust in Jesus as their saviour. The one who proclaims peace. We go in his name and we say, this is what Jesus says. He says, your sins are forgiven. Now, if they, wanna, if they don't want to listen or if they refuse and turn away in unbelief, they are left in their sins. They are left unforgiven. But our job is to proclaim, to tell them, to remind them of the peace in Christ. In verses 24 and 25, proof needed. Proof needed. Let's read those verses again. Verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand on his side, I will not believe. Now John, the writer of the gospel, takes us a whole week later. And in that week, the disciples have met Thomas and told him, Thomas, you won't believe who we saw. We have seen the Lord. And he responds, you're right, I won't believe it. Because you see, Thomas's world has collapsed all around him. And in his grief, he cannot bring himself to believe anymore. So he rejects the words of his friends and spends a whole week alone in self-imposed loneliness and isolation. Perhaps thinking, I need some time alone to process all this stuff and to work some of these issues through. He separates himself from the rest of the group. So before we come down too hard on Thomas, known throughout Christianity as Doubting Thomas, let us remember that the other disciples were not much better. The right thing they did, however, is that they did not isolate themselves individually, but they isolated themselves together as a group. When they first heard the news that Jesus was alive, They didn't believe it either. Uh, Luke tells us this in chapter 24, verse 11, and Mark tells us about this in chapter 16, verse 11. The only reason the ten believed was because they had seen Jesus for themselves. Thomas was only asking for the same proof that the others had already received. And many believers today have to work this through. There's a story of the renowned English preacher, Dr. Campbell Morgan. He, Campbell Morgan actually started preaching at the age of 13, believe it or not, and, and by 19 he was a well-known preacher. But then he was attacked by doubts about the veracity of the Bible, whether he could believe it or not. What happened is that late uh, uh, in the late 1800s, the writings of various scientists and agnostics started appearing and he read this stuff and it disturbed him, the writings of Charles Darwin and Thomas Huxley and others. And as he read their books and, and listened to debates, 
Morgan became more and more perplexed. So what he did is he cancelled all preaching engagements. He locked away all those books that had troubled him and went and bought a new Bible. He said to himself, this is what he said to himself, he says, I am no longer sure that this is what my father claims it to be, the word of God. But of this I am sure, if it is, if it be the word of God, and if I come to it with an unprejudiced and open mind, it will bring assurance to my soul of itself. So what was the result? The Bible found me, said Morgan. And the new, with new assurance in 1883, he gave him, he, he gave him, he, he received the, the motivation for his preaching and teaching ministry, having full confidence in the word of God. On Friday nights, they tell us that 1400 people would attend his Bible studies at Westminster Chapel. There are many people watching, watching us right now that can identify with Thomas. You have, you have a hard time believing what you cannot see with your eyes. And for that reason, perhaps you struggle to trust in Jesus and his extraordinary claims. Yes, his claims are amazing and, and, and perhaps hard for the human mind to grasp. Still, let me encourage you. Let me encourage you to, to continue the journey. Don't give up trying to, to find out if this is true or not. Too much is at stake. There's a difference. I, I just want to explain something. There's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Because doubt is a problem of the intellect trying to make sense. The person wants to believe but has questions. Unbelief is a deeper problem. Unbelief is a problem of the heart. Um, Unbelief will not believe uh, no matter what it sees or how strong the evidence. Thomas was plagued by doubt and Jesus came and answered his challenge. And what did Jesus offer? He offered proof. Proof offered in verses 26 to 29. A week later, his disciples were on the house again and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it on my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. On that next Sunday, so again, another Sunday transpires. This is now two weeks after the resurrection. The disciples met again behind, guess what? Locked doors. But this time, Thomas wasn't locked outside, he was locked inside with the rest. And and what a difference it makes that when we are gathered together with others of the same faith, our faith is strengthened. Now, I'm sure he didn't fully have it all together himself, but at least this time he was with the rest. He probably realised the tremendous mistake he made in withdrawing from the fellowship of the disciples. 
he sought loneliness rather than togetherness. So the, the following Sunday, he was not going to miss church a second time. All of us, during this time, during this time that we find ourselves unable to, to meet together, all of us should really be missing the fellowship. There should be a, a thirst and a hunger for us to come together and to hug one another once again and to have fellowship. We should all be looking forward to this. And we, because we miss a great deal when we separate ourselves from the fellowship of other Christians and try to go it alone. Great things happen within a community of believers that will never happen to us alone. And that is one reason why Christ built his church. To establish a group of loving, caring members of the body of Christ, always ready to give help to the helpless, hope to the hopeless, and a word of exhortation when it is needed. Come on, we can do this. We can finish the race together. And by coming together, we encourage one another as we journey through life with all our faults, because no one is perfect, and we experience what it's like to be the people of God. So there they all are, with Thomas locked into that room, and Jesus miraculously appears. And he offers Thomas the proof that he was asking. I don't think Thomas actually followed through and put his finger in Jesus' hands and sighed. I think he was too overwhelmed. He makes an, an, and he makes one of the greatest exclamations of faith in the whole of the New Testament when he says, my Lord and my God. And this declaration ties with Jesus' words to Mary Magdalene. What was, the, what was said there in verse 17 when Jesus said to her, I am returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Apparently, Thomas never doubted again. And after Pentecost, the Bible never mentions him again. However, History tells us that Thomas travelled east, preaching the gospel through Persia. He finally wound up in India, where he had a, a very fruitful ministry for a number of years. And there are several churches in India today that can trace their history back to the time of Thomas the Apostle. Eventually, the enemies of the Lord killed him with a spear. But now he had no hesitation, he had no doubts, no hesitation in giving his life for the Lord that he once doubted. A life lived for God. And finally, the purpose of the gospel in verses 30 and 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. A similar declaration to this is made three times by John in his Gospel. He, it seems like he needs to reiterate this point over and over again. Why? Because, you see, he's not trying to sell books. He's not trying to have churches later on in posterity, named after him. 
He wrote these things that you might believe. That is the purpose. This is history. Yes, it's true. It's happened. But what's more, these are words of life that believing in Jesus Christ, you might have life eternally with him. If Jesus has indeed risen from the dead, then this is not the end. You and I need to be confronted over and over again over the fact of the resurrection. There really is eternal life in heaven or in hell. And I think I know where you and I want to go. We want to be with Jesus. In fact, I can tell you I know I will be with Jesus. I have that certainty in my heart. And so should you. And you can through Jesus Christ. And no matter what we go through, the good times, the bad times, suddenly the suffering, the struggle, even death, is not meaningless, it's not lost. God redeems all of our experiences for his glory if we surrender it all to him. Now in these times that we go through, may may our faith rather than dwindle down, may it grow and may we all come to glorify him for his goodness to us. All praise and honour be to him. May God bless you.